You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law, brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Welcome to Done By Law for Tuesday the 3rd of November 2020. We're on 3CR Community Radio 8.55am and 3CR Digital or streaming online and podcasted via 3cr.org.au. We're proud to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we're broadcasting from and pay respects to our elders past, present and emerging. And I think all of the hosts are uh, broadcasting and recording from Wurundjeri land. We're your hosts tonight, Gemma Lee Dodds, Daniel Babcevich, um, and Sue Robertson. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hey. It's Lovely good to be to here. There's um, plenty to talk about this week. There's plenty to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Um, before before you do, I feel like we should just shout out the fact that there's finally a spent convictions scheme bill being introduced into Victorian yes. Parliament. Way overdue. A shout out to all of the advocates um, and the activists and people in the sector who have been working so tirelessly for this. And a warning that tonight's episode discusses the court processes following a report of sexual violence or homicide, as well as recent well-publicised sexually violent crimes, which some listeners might find distressing. Victims of sexual assault are often described as suffering twice, first from the experience of the assault and then by having their story challenged in court. Nationally, many states have made changes to their laws to ensure that more victims can tell their story in their own words, on their own terms, without court processes weighing in. However, Victoria's proposed changes to its laws have garnered backlash from victim and survivor groups alike, who consider that these changes are in fact regressive and actually put power back in the hands of the accused. On the other hand, the Victims of Crime Commission say that the laws get the balance right between a victim's right to privacy and the ability to self-identify. Tomorrow, the legislation will be back before the Parliament and more debate will be had. So what exactly is going on? We're lucky enough uh, to have Greg Buckhorn as our guest tonight. Uh, Greg is a barrister and a member of Liberty Victoria's Government Regulation and Equality Policy Subcommittee. Welcome, Greg. Thanks for having me. I suppose just to, to, to get us started, can you give us some context here, I guess, regarding why this issue has become such a sensitive area um, that victim advocates and prosecutors and government alike are so concerned about? I think most people would be aware that there, there have been some pretty high-profile um, sexual offences um, over uh, over the last decade, really. Um, I mean, really, to name a few high-profile ones, um, we're talking about, you know, Jill Ma or Eurydice Dixon, um, Aya Masawe. Um, you know, these are uh, high-profile examples um, of women who... Uh, 
for no fault of their own, um, have been uh, attacked and killed. Um, they've been sexually uh, assaulted in the process. Um, and understandably, um, the public um, has been outraged by these offences. Um, and, you know, that, that's been part of the, I guess, the, the ongoing debate about strengthening our laws um, to protect um, principally uh, women because they're principally um, the victims of these kinds of crimes. Um, and uh, really that's sort of the, the debate that we're having. Um, and I guess because of that debate, um, more victim survivors are uh, feel encouraged to tell their story. Um, for, for many uh, victim survivors, um, telling their story is a part of that healing process. Um, it's important for them to really for their, their purposes of identity, for self-determination. Um, they don't want to be pigeonholed as um, the victim for all of their lives. Um, for some people, for, for, for others, um, you know, they, they might identify more with the victim label and um, that's their prerogative as well. Um, and they may prefer privacy. Um, but I guess where the, the laws that we're talking about today come from is, well, what happens uh, if a person chooses to self-publish their identity as a victim survivor, uh, how can they do that lawfully um, and without getting uh, slugged with a fine or, or worse in some cases? So that's really, I think, um, the background to, to this kind of uh, debate that I think we're seeing at the moment. You mentioned before that, um, that women... Um could be slugged with a fine for, for talking about what happened to them. How, how does the law work at the moment, I, I guess, in terms of what a victim is able to do? Yeah, so um, there's a, a quirky provision in um, a, an oddly named uh, piece of legislation, which is called the Judicial Proceedings Reports Act. Uh, basically, it's sort of a blanket um, offence um, where nobody can publish anything which might likely lead to the identification of a person um, who is a victim of a sexual offence. Um, so any kind of sexual offence, any kind of victim publication uh, is a criminal offence. And this law has been in place for a long time, I should say. Um, the Judicial Proceedings Act is from 1958, and this offence has existed since at least the 90s. So it's not a well-known law, but I think because of our, uh, the recent debates about that we've been having in relation to um, victim survivors, it's become um, a bit of an issue because people do want to tell their stories, but this provision is preventing them from doing that without risking a prosecution. I see. Okay. I'm just curious, you said this law is it's quite an old law and it's come to our attention recently. Is there any particular case or cases of recent times that have caused the, our interest in ca campaigns around changing this law? Uh, I mean, this law has been around for a long time and from recollection, it did did make its way, I think, to the Court of Appeal in Victoria um, in relation to Darren Hinch, um, who himself was prosecuted um, under this law um, for disclosing the identity um, of a victim of sexual violence in circumstances where he was seeking to um, really name and shame the perpetrator of that offence. Um, but because of this, the way that the, the law is framed, anything that might 
lead to the identification of that victim survivor is an offence. So um, it has been around for a while. I think you, you sort of touched on it before, Greg, but, you know, we often hear, I guess, about the, the importance of making sure an accused gets a fair trial, so to speak, um, and obviously Hinch was prosecuted um, with, with that kind of in mind, I guess, because I think in that instance the accused hadn't uh, yet been hadn't been trialled and and so it was seen to sort of uh, jeopardise that but my understanding is that obviously victims um, to the extent that they they participate in the criminal process just because of the way a criminal trial works their their evidence is often only one part of the overall criminal trial Um, they're certainly not the focus of the criminal trial Um, so you can understand how victims would feel um, that they hadn't had an opportunity or the law hadn't really afforded them an opportunity to properly tell their story, couldn't you? No, I think that's right. I mean, criminal proceedings are focused on the accused by their very nature. Um, An allegation's been made and um, it's the state which prosecutes um, that person. And so it's really a question of, well, has the state been able to prove beyond reasonable doubt um, all the elements of an offence? And so um, inevitably um, victims will, I guess, be sidelined for that process to run its course. Um, So, you know, traditionally um, that's that's how our system of justice works and traditionally victims um, have complained that they don't feel um, heard or valued as part of the process. Um, so I guess the ability to self-publish becomes even more important for um, victim survivors. And I guess, Greg, the flip side of that is if we took a case like the prosecution of Cardinal Pell recently where Obviously, the victim in in that context, um, they wanted anonymity and the ability to give evidence in that trial without their name being published. So are you saying that these laws are trying to kind of ensure that that victims or or survivors in that circumstance are able to participate in the legal process as well? Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to uh, why the laws were introduced in the first place. I haven't done uh, that level of research, but what I can say, I think, is, and I can say it safely, is uh, that the design of these laws means that um, people, uh, victim survivors who do not wish for their identity to be published can have that um, reassurance. So they can go through a legal proceeding having... uh, Uh, made an allegation of a sexual offence and uh, not be subject to um, the the stigma and um, the the, the shame that many victim survivors experience as a result of um, the offending that's been perpetrated um, against them. I think the reality is that's how many people uh, feel um, and I don't think... Uh, it's fair for them to be forced to have to be exposed to a, a level of publicity which may just be um, as re-traumatising. I think one of the main issues that we've seen in recent years is that historically um, rates of sexual offending um, have been low um, because I think that barrier exists. Um, these protections under the, the um, 
for example, under the Judicial Proceedings Reports Act, um, allows for a person to safely go to police, tell their stories to the court um, and seek justice if um, they so choose and uh, have the, the comfort that they'll be protected um, along the way. I was going to ask in relation to that, let's take the example of the Pell case or a case, any case like that, where it's, it goes through different um, parts of the court hierarchy. Um, and let's say instead of the victim wanting to be anonymous, they actually do want to identify themselves. Do they have to wait until every possible avenue of the court process has expired? I'm just thinking about that Pell case and wondering if, you know, just say it was the other way around and the victim wanted to be known and they did that before that ultimate High Court appeal. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, in the Pell case, um, it wasn't this law that we're talking about which mm -hmm. suppressed the media. Um, mm -hmm. The judge in the county court and then all the way up um, along the way as the suppression orders um, continued and then eventually they fell apart. They, they were made under a separate act, the Open Courts Act. Um, and essentially the reason for doing that was to ensure that Cardinal Powell had a fair trial, which is an important right in and of itself. Um, so I, I guess that's the, the, the difficulty with this debate is how do you find that right balance? There, there needs to be a balance to ensure um, that uh, a victim survivor can tell their story because that's an inherent part of their um, right to personality, rights to privacy um, and personal identity that comes with that. But at the same time, if a person's then subject to a criminal process, um, well, they need to uh, be uh, insured a fair trial. Um, so, uh, yeah, these laws don't uh, uh, ensure that there's a separate uh, law that allows for suppression orders to be put in place and I guess it's up to the judge in the case to decide well where's the balance struck and you know I think in a high profile case like Cardinal Powell um, the, the judge obviously decided that it, it fell in favour of um, non-publication. Isn't there already protection for uh, child children that are victims of sexual offences in in any event is there any extra protection for a, a child well, I think that this law would, um, so the Judicial Proceedings Reports Act would cover that scenario because it doesn't differentiate between adults and child victims. Um, it's just a, a person who, against whom a sexual offence um, has been committed. So it, it covers the field. Um, and then in terms of children who are the accused in a sexual offence case, um, well, there's another law which would protect their identity. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a number of laws that are at play and they're all serving a different purpose. It's quite a bit of a minefield, really, isn't it? Yeah, which is why I think this debate is so complex. It's, I don't think there's a simple answer to this um, because there are competing interests at play. All very well, I guess, to say that, you know, victims... Um, should be able to tell their story, but what if what if they're no longer with us? How does the law treat victims in that circumstance, and what does this law do? Uh, well, in terms of the the law as it currently stands, um, I mean, on one interpretation, if you're a victim of a sexual offence and you've passed, um, well, the law would still prevent you from um, reporting uh, on that person, um, notwithstanding that. They're, uh, they've deceased. Um, I mean, generally speaking, I, I don't think 
well, the, the law doesn't protect the rights, uh, privacy rights of a person who's deceased. Um, they only apply to living people. And I think that's acknowledged um, under our charter and that's acknowledged at international law in the fact, in the sense that it's silent about um, deceased people. And I guess from an historical perspective, the reason why privacy laws like defamation and thing exist is because um, it's to protect a person from feeling shame or humiliation. Um, and I guess those sorts of um, legal uh, proceedings are designed to, I guess, vindicate a person's reputation. Um, and once a person's um, dead, uh, well, they don't, they can't feel that shame or humiliation. So question mark over, well, has their reputation been damaged? Um, so I guess in that sense, um, when we're looking at it from that, that sort of defamation angle, um, from that privacy angle, uh, deceased people don't get that protection. Um, but under this particular provision, there's a, I guess a real gray area about, well, um, does it cover deceased people? Um, and I guess in one interpretation, it does. Um, and then I guess the problem with that is, well, even once they've passed and they wouldn't normally have the protections um, that you sort of see and you know, the media can publish um, whatever they like about a deceased person, well, this law would still prevent that from taking place. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA plus Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1800 729 367. That's 1800 729 367, 10am to 6pm every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. Let's let's turn a bit more to what this law talks about. Why has this legislation become so divisive? Well, um, I think I'm aware of an article that's been um, published by uh, uh, the campaign organisation Let Us Speak, um, and uh, that was from a couple of days ago now. Um, but some of the criticisms that they've said um, are that the bill that's before Parliament, which seeks to change the Judicial Proceedings Reports Act, um, will create a, a new offence which um, prevents people themselves or the media from publishing the identity of a person who is a victim of a sexual offence homicide. Um, and that it's either impossible or you need to go to court to be able to, to do that. Um, and so it really, it, 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 the criticism is that it's against the grain of this um, uh, momentum for or in favour of um, self-publication. So I think that's where um, the, the criticism is stemming from. I don't necessarily agree with um, all of the criticisms. I think some of them are uh, genuine criticisms, but I think some of them um, may not accurately reflect what I think, at least, um, is uh, what the bill says it will do. Okay. And what what is it that the bill says it will do? Uh, well, I mean, the, the bill sort of follows on from a change in the law from February of this year. Um, and uh, basically what that bill did was um, it changed the law so that 
rather than, uh, or maybe I'll go back a step, um, you were able to seek permission from um, a court to publish um, the identity or material which might identify um, a victim survivor of sexual offence if you got the court's permission whilst the proceeding was pending. Um, they changed the law so that you could make that application after a, a, a hearing had finished. Um, so, uh, and I guess there were some exceptions that were in place. What this bill seeks to do is really, um, well, this is what the government is saying at least, um, it's trying to expand the, the types of cases um, in which a person can seek to either seek permission or just publish without getting any kind of permission in certain cases. Um, so I guess the, the first thing that it seeks to do, and I guess what the government says is the law already does this, but it, it's really clarifying that. Um, I, I wonder whether or not that's the case or it's, um, I guess, government speak. But uh, <laughs> what, what the bill seeks to do in any, in any case is, I guess, firstly, provides a defence that if there's no um, legal proceeding in place, you can publish. Um, so uh, I guess once a person's been charged by the police, then I guess the, the, this offence sort of steps in. Secondly, uh, if you're the victim survivor yourself, um, you can self-publish. It provides that, um, I guess, exception without qualification. Um, thirdly, if you're an adult and you have decision-making capacity and that's defined under the the bill, um, which I won't get into now, but if you have that capacity and you give permission to another person with or without conditions, and so long as if there are conditions, it's in compliance with those conditions, then the other person can publish that. And then, so if you've got that framework in place, that's a defence to the any prospective charge. And in terms of uh, children, uh, again, if they can give permission with or without conditions, um, they would need to have uh, what's called a supporting statement and basically that's a statement from another person who says that the child understands the meaning of um, being identified and the consequences of that. In other cases um, you need to seek a court order and permission can be granted after the court takes it into account. So this is if it's a living person, the victim's views um, and whether it's in the public interest and if it's a deceased person if uh, the victim's views, if they are known, or you can find that out, um, the family's views, except if a family member is, an, is the offender or the accused in that case, um, and what the public interest is. Um, so public interest isn't defined, but I would imagine open justice principles would be relevant to that. In terms of what cannot be taken into account, um, the court is prohibited from taking into account the accused or the offender's views. Um, so I think one of the criticisms um, is that perpetrators will take center stage under this law. I think by that very provision, um, they cannot. Um, they're, they're simply taken out of the equation altogether. I guess the last thing is if there's a general protection if there's more than one victim. Um, if, a, if the second victim says, I don't want to be identified, um, any publication uh, cannot identify that person or have the capacity of likely identifying them. So it, I, I guess if you read that liberally, um, you can still publish about person A if they've given that permission, but not about person B um, if they've said, I don't want to be identified. So I guess you know, that's another level of complexity when, when you've got multiple victims.
Oh, wow. I think the last thing to say would be um, it uh, provides, I guess, an amnesty period. So um, from April 1991, which I think is when this offence was created until the uh, act comes, uh, the bill comes into force, if it ever does, it's not an offence if you've already published, um, so long as you've got the permission of um, the person, the, the victim survivor. And I guess maybe that's an area which needs to be clarified because if you take, for example, the case of, say, Jill Ma, well, um, that was a high-profile case and it's questionable whether uh, there, that permission existed or can exist um, at all. Um, and it would be a terrible thing if, um, you know, all of that media and the uh, any reference to her can never be made again because she simply um, cannot say yes now. So I think um, obviously it's up to the, the DPP to prosecute, but it would, um, I think, provide uh, greater comfort if the, they sort of clarified, um, I guess, that little quirk. Interesting. What would happen if, um, you know, advocates wanted to come together and create a vigil or a march or a movement um, it sounds like what that law would require is, uh, and this is in the event that the, the victim has passed, um, would be um, having regard to the public interest factors and having regard to whether permission could be sought from the family. But it wouldn't prevent advocacy necessarily, uh, I guess, about that death or um, drawing attention to that issue in that circumstance. Is that, does that sound right to you? Yeah, I mean, and th- this may be something that the government needs to think about because... Thinking back myself to the vigils for um, Jill Maher or Eurydice Dixon, for example, you know, those were quite spontaneous um, and I'm not sure whether or not the accused or the offenders in those cases had been charged with anything. So I guess if there hadn't been a charge, there'd be no prohibition. But if there was, um, it might be a bit of a burdensome process to have to go and get court permission to be able to at least publish. I don't think there's anything... Um, inherently wrong with holding a vigil and maybe using a person's name but I guess if you were to put that on Facebook or um, publish it in a newspaper um, that might create problems and um, I I know the government said that um, they're still thinking about uh, I guess improving these laws if they are passed um, going forward and, and that may be an area that they need to think about. I think where the balance needs to be struck I think is ensuring that um you know, an accused person does have a fair trial, um, but at the same time also reach, uh, finding that right balance between victim survivors or their families who do want to have the victim survivor's identity uh, published, um, but also respecting the views of um, victims or family members um, of particular deceased people who do not want that to happen, um, who don't want to be exposed to that re-traumatising um, process. So, um, yeah, it's a difficult it's a difficult uh, issue. Um, there's a lot of rights that are and different interests that are at play. But I think um, what's important is that those people need to be central. Um, and I, I mean, the media, I don't think, really should be responsible for deciding who gets to enjoy their rights at the end of the day. I think that's what the, the DPP's statement has said. Um, and I think um, that's a sensible, a sensible statement. I think there's also a saving provision that says that no one would be prosecuted for an offence anyway without the sanction of the Director of Public Prosecutions. So there's that extra protection as well that 
Well, I mean, it's up to, it's obviously up to the DPP and I, I understand there's a guideline in place for this, for prosecutions under this act. Um, but it would be even better um, if rather than a person having to be exposed to an offence and then having to prove a defence um, that they simply weren't exposed in the first place. Um, I think that would be a, a better way to sort of deal with this issue. I understand uh, I mean, I know that the bill probably addressed that, but at the moment it doesn't. That's really, I think, a, a big criticism and a fair criticism of the current law. Um, um, if a family member, for example, posts something on Facebook, well, should they be uh, exposed to a criminal proceeding? I, I don't really think that's uh, the right way to approach this type of issue. The other side of that is the vigils that, um, that Gemma was talking about earlier. You know, those vigils can happen on sort of annual basis and things like that. And so every year, um, a, a reminder um, might not be what you want. For Speaking for Liberty Victoria, one of the things that we were discussing when we were looking at the bill, um, and I think we'll continue to think about, is well, what if a person wants to revoke their consent to publication? How do you do that? Uh, well, that's another minefield. Um, and that's not covered by the bill. Um, and it may be something that the, the government might want to think about. Like most things, if you can give con consent, you can also withdraw your consent. Logically or fairly speaking, um, this is another area where you should be allowed to do that as well. Yeah, the, the irony is certainly not lost on me that this, these, we're, we're talking obviously about crimes that mostly involve a lack of consent and that these laws are seeking to address, uh, better address, I guess, victims and survivors in that context and put consent at sort of front and centre in terms of how they want their story told or not. Yeah, no, I, the irony is not lost on me either. <laughs> Greg, that's just been such a, a helpful uh, way of helping us um, understand what's happened. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, my pleasure. Tune in to Dunbar Law next time on 3CR on 8.55am on Tuesday nights. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.